Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco, opening up the way to the art and soul of healing, a journey to learn about integrative and functional medicine nutrition therapies. This is a road trip to good health. Today, we will be visiting with Dr. Clayton Bell. Clayton Bell is a medical doctor and family medicine physician with special training and passion in integrative medicine. Currently, Clayton is a clinical assistant professor at the University of Tennessee Medical Center and an integrative medicine physician for the University of Tennessee Medical Center Cancer Institute. His special training in integrative medicine creates a blend of the best of Western medicine with the physical, mental, and spiritual needs of patients. Clayton has interesting medical experiences that weave a common thread in his approach to caring for people that empowers healing from the inside out. The special journey of the art and soul of healing to Knoxville, Tennessee, is on the wings of the Alliance for Natural Health USA. Welcome, Clayton Bell. Clayton, thank you so much for joining us. What some people may not know about you is that you have spent time in Haiti. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to. No, absolutely. That was, I guess, a very big part and a very formative experience for me on multiple different levels. So at the end of medical school, I was in my fourth year and I had already planned to not go directly to residency. I'd actually started a 501c3 nonprofit called Where the Stars Still Shine. And I was helping a physician out in Ghana and I was planning on moving there for six months and helping him out in his, uh, it's called the Modern Women's Clinic. And then I was going to go to the, uh, I thought the Himalaya indefinitely to try to discover some deeper essence of healing. And I thought I would find it some temple or ashram somewhere. And then the, uh, the Haiti earthquake happened in January, 2010. And I got an opportunity to go down there for a month with the international medical relief organization called Humanity First USA. I went down there and it just literally blew me away on so many different levels. And I felt like there was so many ways that I could help other other folks that were just in need. You know, honestly, I try not to be too much of a, say, a taker per se, but honestly, in, in a way, it was one of the first times I could actually justify my existence as a, as a human being. You know, like I felt like I was actually giving more than I was taking and it felt really good. And then also I was surrounded by people who physically were extremely impoverished, but on a spiritual level, on a soul level, they were way richer than pretty much any Americans that I knew. Oh, you know, that's they had, amazing. Yeah, they had community, they had family, and that's just the way that I wanted to live. And so instead of going to to uh, Africa and going to Himalaya, I, I actually moved down there. And uh, the organization, Humanity First, was amazing. And they supported us. And uh, myself, along with another physician who was in medical school at the time, had taken, I guess, a year off to get his master's in public health. Um, we actually reopened an abandoned medical clinic in the mountains called the Cloud Forest Medical Clinic. And we operated that for 15 months. Then the second year I was there, uh, we spent most of our time building a school, which we still have now going strong 10 years later called oh, the so Bell Samaritan Primary still. School. Oh, it is. Yes, great. ma'am. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's really wonderful. cool. Yeah. <laughs> so you actually provided medical care there. I, you mm-hmm. know, that's probably more of a residency than an actual residency. <laughs> it was definitely, it was really interesting. I got myself in trouble a couple of times when I got back to the States because, you know, people would come into the ED and I'd be like, oh, they're not, they're not that sick. Like I've, I've treated cholera, you know what I mean? It's like <laughs> that person, they're not, they, you know, I'm not that worried about them. They're like, no, you need to, you need to be a little more worried about these people, you know, but you know, we'd, uh, we'd have people come in all the time that are asymptomatic, would have blood pressures like uh-huh. 200 over 140. 
you know, in the States, he might admit him in there. It was just like, it was just common practice, you know? Oh and so gosh. we see him. Yeah. But it was wild. Like the, the cholera stuff was definitely something really intense. I had gone to the Northern side of the country when it first broke out. And we were like in this mash style hospital. There's probably 40 or 50 just cots literally. And they'd cut out a hole where people could literally like just defecate through the hole. And we wore mud boots because there was so much um, emesis and just uh, feces on the ground. And it was just all, you know, cholera. And that stuff's so contagious. You know, a 20 ounce bottle of that could infect mm-hmm. a thousand people if you, you know, mm-hmm. delineated it out. But after that, and I actually got cholera myself down there. But luckily, it wasn't too bad. I, I didn't have to get obvious fluids, just some oral rehydration, some antibiotics. But anyway, um, when we had the first case in the mountains where we were, because we were at the very top of the plateau there and gosh, the the water supply, it was an underground cave and it was a water supply that would go down the mountain and it fed at least at least a quarter million people. But what had happened with the Haitians is they didn't understand germ theory. And it, I mean, why would you understand germ theory, right? Like, right, you know, right. If, if you weren't exposed to it or taught it. So to them, it made a lot more sense that, hey, if I have this diarrhea, I can either defecate on the ground, right? And that's dirty, or I can do it in the river and it goes away, it's clean. So what happened is everyone would just poop in the river. And then, you know, downstream people to drink out of the river. And a lot of people, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, they don't have the chlorine filtration mm-hmm. systems or mm-hmm. they didn't know to boil their water, what have you. So there's a lot of spread there. But we teamed up. We're really lucky. We teamed up with like Doctors Without Borders, and we actually had them come, um, Medico Sans Frontiers, and they set up a cholera treatment center where we were, which is really amazing because the first two cases we got, my uh, my buddy Kyle, Dr. Martin, and I literally would hike out like four liters of like lactate ringers at a time to this person's mm. house a couple miles away. And then we had taught her son how to basically just keep him going. And we wound up pumping her with literally 40 liters of fluid over mm. the course of four or five days. She lived, so did her husband. He wanted like 20-something liters. But it was crazy. So yeah, it was it was quite the experience for sure. Where did the most of the medical supplies come from? Yeah, great question. So a lot of it's donations, a lot of it's shipped in. Like we when we were down there, what we would do is we would actually purchase, we'd go to the World Health Organization mm-hmm. and they had a big dispensary down there. And so we would purchase the medicines from them. They were extremely inexpensive, which just makes you wonder like why medicine costs so much here in the States, right? <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah. We were buying the same stuff for pennies on the, you know, versus the dollars here. So we would go and we would stock up about once a month, you know, with medicine and then our truck and then drive it back up the mountain. And it was a long as a six hour drive to get wow. back up there. Yeah. So that, that was good. And so that's how we would get the medicines. If we had volunteers coming in, they might bring a suitcase full of the mm-hmm. antibiotics or mm-hmm. things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you were there how many years? Two years. And were you married with Jeannie? Yeah. So it's really funny. So Jeannie and I actually started dating down there. Jeannie went down there, I guess, yeah, one year one year after the earthquake, her and her best friend, Aaron, started, uh, I guess it was an outpatient occupational physical rehabilitation center with their NGO that they were working with, Haiti Medical Missions of Memphis. And they were in Claudia Bouquet, which is a suburb of Haiti. We had met each other via one of my best friends who is an emergency room nurse who is living with us in the mountains. And he introduced us and I came back to the States and we did this like 60 mile mountain bike race together one weekend and just hit it <laughs> off and kind of start. And, I, and she said she, she asked about moving to Haiti. And so she said she's going to move down there. And I kind of thought, back around, oh, she'll wind up moving to the mountains with us. There's no way she's going to live in this nunnery. And she did, mm-hmm. but they had this amazing complex. And yeah, so we started dating down there. And then I guess at the, at the end, I asked her if she wanted to move to Maine with me because she was going to do residency. And she said, sure. And so we did a 42-day, 2,600-mile bike tour together. 
Um, That's a true test of a relationship. (laughs) That's kind of what we were thinking. We're like, you know, residency is going to be tough. So we need to see if this is going to stick or not. So let's just, uh, just throw it in the cauldron and see what happens. And we stuck and here we are now 10 years later and we've got a uh, little baby girl just born a month ago and we're very, very, very blessed. So after that, after your residency, tell me, how did you get the integrative medicine bug? Was it during residency? Was it in medical school? So I think going back to even like, you know, undergrad, I'd always been a little more holistically, philosophically minded. And then in medical school, you know, like I love the rotations and I love the interaction with like the nurses and the doctors and the patients, you know, those were very fulfilling. But I, and I don't know if you had this experience or not, but I often felt like a kind of a robot in a white coat being positive mm-hmm. reinforced for like memorization. And I felt like I was, and I had a great education. I you know, went to University of Arkansas Medical Sciences and it was a great medical school, but I just felt like the medical education was missing out on some of the key essences of healing, mm-hmm. you know, and then when I went to Haiti, I guess, you know, I learned a lot about just education and prevention mm-hmm. and how much easier that is than, you know, just trying to treat things acutely. And then when I got into residency, what I found is that I was literally given every single patient a pill for something, yeah. you know, hypertension or, you know, high cholesterol, or you know, we had a lot of chronic pain patients. So I was prescribing some narcotics. And after about a year and a half or two years of that, I was like, this is, this is not sustainable. I don't even know if this is mm-hmm. safe, mm-hmm. you know, or healthy. And so I, but I didn't have any of the toolkit, you know, I didn't have anything else. And I did the, um, we offered the at Central Maine Medical Center, they offered a integrative medicine track and you could mm-hmm. do the University of Arizona's, you know, like residency version of their fellowship program. And it was like a 200 hour online curriculum, but I'd get up at four o'clock in the morning and do this. And I was before I'd go in just because like, oh my God, now I have tools that I can use and teach people how to help build themselves. Uh-huh. And then I went to a food as medicine conference and that really turned me on. When I was out there, I actually met someone who was doing an integrative medicine fellowship at University of Michigan. And they encouraged me to do a fellowship. And I didn't even know they existed at the time. Mm-hmm. So then, you know, I'm on the internet right after that. And then I found your program at University mm-hmm. of Kansas. And I think that's that's when I really caught the bug. You know, I came and interviewed down there with you guys. And y'all were so, just so strong in nutrition and that orthomolecular functional medicine. And that was just mind-blowing to me because obviously, you know, I never had any exposure to that. Yeah. And so when I came there at Kansas, that working with you and the other docs there and, you know, the whole team, it just, that really just blew the blinders off of it and opened up a whole new world of medicine I didn't even know existed. And then after that, you were invited to start a program at the University of Tennessee Medical Center in Knoxville. Give me a little bit of a background of how that unfolded. Sure, sure, sure. So I was very, very, very fortunate. So there is a physician here at University of Tennessee Medical Center named Dr. Rocio Hewitt, and she had been an internal medicine doc for, I'm going to get it wrong, but probably 25 years or so, and decided she wanted to do a more integrative approach. She took a little time off and did basically a self-research kind of fellowship on her own and then started a primary care practice. So over the last four or five years, they had been looking to expand that practice to consultations and to have someone that could come in and really open that up to the Cancer Institute. And so when I was there at Kansas, I I got the call that said, hey, like, you know, would you be interested in, you know, working at an academic university in Tennessee? And it was funny because Gene and I decided the only two states we weren't going to live in were Arkansas and Tennessee. That's where <laughs> we're from. So we were going to you know, go to Colorado and California. But I was like, academic, that'd be cool. You know, you get more of a platform and you know, I felt you could be leading edge and build to really make a big difference. They're like, yeah, we'll entertain that. And like, were you okay working with cancer patients? And I was like, I would love to actually, because, you know, we were doing a lot of work with cancer patients there because the IV vitamin C. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I had a lot of exposure to, to folks with cancer. And then my mom's had cancer. My grandma had cancer. And it's just more and more prevalent. Coming to Tennessee was a great opportunity because all the, all the pieces were in place and they really just needed someone who could begin to operate that practice and kind of pull everything together. It's really just been an amazing experience. And I've been really, really blessed, just surrounded by a lot of really awesome people wanting to see this succeed. That can be kind of tricky, though, advising patients in integrative medicine while they're undergoing conventional therapies. So how do you navigate that? That's a great question. And I think one of the reasons we have been so successful here with this practice, because you'll always get pinned by patients all the time. Mm-hmm. But, well, can I do this instead of that? Can I take this <laughs> herb instead of doing chemo? I'm just really honest with people. I tell them what I know. I tell them what the science says. And then I would love to tell you that you can say, you know, sleep well and exercise and meditate and, and do these things and that it will reverse your cancer process and you don't have to get the surgery or you don't have to do the chemo radiation. I was like, but truth is, we don't have studies that, that verify that. And I was like, could, could it be the case that those things might work just as well or better? Possibly, but I, I don't know. You know, I, but what I tell people is I know they help. I know if you focus on the foundations of your health, if you eat super healthy, whole food, clean diet, and you, know, you get rid of all the preservatives, you get rid of all the added sugars and white flowers and all those things, if you get a good night's sleep, and if you're able to be physically active, and if you're able to reduce your stress, and get more in that parasympathetic state, and then we can use some of the scientifically validated, say, herbs or vitamins or supplements or replenish them if they're missing you know, essential nutrients and such. I was like, no matter what you choose, whether you choose to forego traditional treatment or whether you choose to get chemo or radiation or surgery or a combination of the three, you will have better outcomes based on that. So I'm just trying to be really honest with people and then work really closely with our surgeons, with our oncologists, with our RADSONX folks oh, that's um, great. to keep everyone in the loop. Yeah, that's wonderful. And how about nutritionists? Do they have a robust nutrition team you can work with? So we do have a nutritionist at the Cancer Institute, and she's really great. Her name's Amy Cran, and she does a really good job helping to educate patients. I hope in the future we have more and more and more access to nutritionists for our cancer patients. I mean, I would ideally, and I would love to see that every single cancer patient that came through there literally was assigned a nutritionist and someone to really work with them personally on their diet. I think that should be the standard of care, and I think it will be in the future. You know, I think medical practice still catching up with the science of how important nutrition is for cancer. <laughs> you said this already, but we just never had that much exposure to, to food, nutrition, and medical school. Oh, wow. I know, yeah. it's such a pull in our education. So what do you tell people about diet? I know that's what the, one of the first questions they ask. Sure, 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 sure. It is. And so one of the things that really is helpful for me is I do like a, a dietary inventory before they come in. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally assessing like, what do you eat for breakfast? Like, what do you mm-hmm. eat for lunch? What do you eat for dinner? What do you drink? How much do you drink? And a lot of times people, you know, they literally, they don't drink water. You know what yeah. I'm saying? They might drink 20 ounces a day or less. And then I'm looking at, you know, like vegetable intake, fruit intake, whole grains. I actually show them an anti-inflammatory food pyramid from Dr. Andrew Weil, along with other things too, you know, like alcohol consumption, how many white flowery foods or baked goods are you eating? Are you drinking any sugary sweetened beverages like Cokes or even juices for that matter? Once we get that, that helps a lot because then I can couple it with their specific cancer mm-hmm. and kind of their motivation and their capacity, if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm not trying to get someone that goes to McDonald's three times a day and drinks two liters of Coke a day to to go vegan or anything, right? Yeah, you know, for right, them, right. it's like, let's just take a step or uh-huh. maybe we're pulling back the Coke or we're introducing some more plant-based foods or we're saying, hey, 
let's try to eat some organic grass-fed beef, right, instead of getting the ground chuck at Walmart. You know, so <laughs> I think it's it's really just meeting people where they're at. And then there's kind of like an ideal. But then, as you know, too, if someone's on chemo, mm-hmm. that might not be an option for them. You right, know? right. Or, or someone just had a colon surgery. They don't need to be in a bunch of broccoli and cruciferous vegetables. You know, like that's not a good time for that. As their body heals, then that can be a great. But sometimes people are just trying to survive, you yeah, know. And then, absolutely. Yeah, I think, and I don't know if you had this experience or not too, but I think giving people the latitude to have some grace themselves. Because uh-huh. I've seen a lot of people that they're like, no, you know, I, they just beat themselves up and they stress mm-hmm. out about their food so much. I think the stress is actually more detrimental than the foods they're eating or not eating. That's probably true. Absolutely. Do you partner with OTPT for your cancer survivors? Not as much as we should. We do have, you know, like if someone has lymphedema from, let's say, like an axillary dissection with like, you know, breast cancer surgery, we have the capacity to send folks over there for referrals. And we do have a really good PTOT department. But, you know, and I make a lot of referrals for people that that have some type of issue. But honestly, that's a very underutilized service that we should be using more of. Mm -hmm. It's just that movement too, teaching people how to move again. Yes. Totally agree with you. You're right about that. And that's, you know, kind of being from an athletic background too, I, I agree. And when we don't move, I know we get down. And, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Cancer patients. Yeah, it's very difficult time. You really do have to support them emotionally, whatever they can do. I want to segue a little bit. I know sure. that you received an honor recently from the Society of Integrative Oncology, the Young Investigator Forum Award recipient. Tell us a little bit about what you presented to win that award. So that that was a really cool experience. So that's a great organization. I would highly encourage anyone to get involved with. So it's it's full of researchers and clinicians, and it's all extremely evidence-based. It's a, just a really great organization. And going to those conferences, actually, since I was at Kansas with, uh, with you, that was my first one I went to. And I guess I've been going about five years now and have met some really just wonderful integrative oncologists there and integrative medicine docs who run these integrative oncology clinics um, like at Memorial Sloan Kettering or the Osher Center out in San Fran, what have you, in the Anderson Banner. But anyway, so this award was pretty cool. It was for young investigators, so folks that have been in either, um, I guess, going to their PhD programs or have been like their faculty within the first three years, their faculty appointments at academic institutions. And you could submit what your, some of your current research. If it was accepted, then you could go present it to some really internationally seasoned researchers <laughs> and they would essentially give you very positive criticism and, you know, essentially kind of help break your research project apart and show you the strengths of it and its weaknesses. And so that was a really eye-opening and uh, humbling and excellent learning experience. What was the specific focus? Sure. So ours is actually pretty cool. So at the University of Tennessee Medical Center, we're really blessed because we have the University of Tennessee right here across the river. And then we also have Oak Ridge National Laboratory, uh-huh. which is where part of the Manhattan Project took place. It can be the world's largest supercomputer. The exaflops of information that can be processed there are just amazing. So what we're looking at as a cancer institute and then UT undergrad and then Oak Ridge National Labs is we're looking at doing these collaborative projects together where we're assessing the microbiome in patients for different specific cancers. So we're looking at everything from, of course, like, you know, the DNA or the RNA of the actual different type of, say, uh, microbiome, you know, bacteria, but then also there's even a gentleman over there who's really interested in the mycology of it, but then also the metabolomics as well. So for uh-huh. instance, the, the one that I presented on was on colorectal cancer. And so not only are we going to look at, you know, the different type of bacteria, 
that are associated with that. And that literature has already been published. So you can see, you know, fairly readily, you know, kind of the associations there, but also looking at like the metabolomics of like the short chain fatty acids, like butyrate, things like that. So we were looking at that as well as actually doing samplings from the colon cancer tissues, um, like tissue brushings, and be able to look at that microbiome as well. So not just in the stool, but actually there at the site of the tumor itself. And then looking at some blood levels, so things like CRP, so looking at an inflammatory state, which has been shown to be an independent prognostic indicator of outcomes, folks call rectal cancer, as well as looking at like their CBC with differential. So we could like look at neutrophil lymphocyte counts that are mm-hmm. also shown, you know, to be like a potentially a marker inflammation or can be indicative of outcomes as well. Um, and then vitamin D status, which is usually low. And there was some trials that came out recently um, that show that maybe even something with vitamin D high dose might help blue this progression for free survival. We're trying to pull all that information together. And then long-term, this is down the road, but what we really like to be able to do is come in with some nutritional interventions mm-hmm. and see, hey, can we change this if we incorporate, let's say, anti-inflammatory, anti-cancer spices like turmeric or mm-hmm. fiber or water, you know, get people to change their diets and then you know how does that change their microbiome their metabolomics and what have you well as we both know the good bacteria in the gut make butyrate so did Mm -hmm. you find that the butyrate was low in these people all the studies that i have looked at that has been the case tends to be the case that the butyrate uh, is low and you know the butyrate is protective against the colorectal cancer and it feeds the enterocytes Mm -hmm. as well as a primary fuel source for them our study is still in the formative stages. It's We have a biobank that we've just set up here at UT Medical Center. Um, and so we're starting to collect tissue samples as well as say stool samples and everything else. The colorectal cancer project would really kind of be almost like a pilot for what we'd eventually roll into like GYN oncology, mm-hmm. breast cancer, everything mm-hmm. else. So the pieces, as you know, in a big academic institution move very slowly. But <laughs> no, we're tr- really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know that. Um, so we're trying to really set up sustainable protocols. Um, we're still in the process of getting everything lined out, but I'll definitely let you know in the future what we find. Oh, well, that's we start great. Actually, yeah. I think that's a wonderful direction to take because it does tie back to what foods we eat, what mm-hmm. activity we have, and so much about lifestyle. I know that you have really a first love, and that's Ayurvedic medicines. Tell us a little bit about where you are with that. Actually, it's a very timely question, too. I'm lucky enough, the National Ayurvedic Medical Association national meeting this year is actually going to be in Boone, North Carolina at the Art of Living Retreat Center, and that's coming up April 24th to 26th, and I was lucky enough to get asked to come speak at that conference on a panel, and we're actually discussing Alma and transintestinal permeability or like leaky gut. Well, there and, you go. It all yeah, ties I up. <laughs> it, it totally does. And AMA is the idea of this unprocessed, undigested, basically toxins or food you could think uh-huh. about um, and the disturbance that makes in the gut. So for instance, you know, you could tie that directly back to say colorectal cancer. So let's say a person has a diet of, let's say processed or red meats and they're drinking very little water and eating very few vegetables to flush that out. And so, you know, there's going to be some basically backup and putrefaction that might spoil in there. They're going to cause some inflammation. It's going to predispose someone to developing colorectal cancer later on. So that's just a very functional analogy or metaphor there for how that plays in. But the Ayurveda is really cool. And for your listeners that aren't familiar with that, I I was not either until actually I was there and I guess I went to yoga a weekend camp down there in Kapalu with Jeannie, my wife. I got a little book by a doctor named Basant Ladd 
and it was uh, on Ayurveda and it was like, Oh my God, wow. I, this makes so much sense. And I understand myself better now. Like I, I have all these pitta, which is this fire element characteristics in my personality. And Oh, this makes a lot of sense. You know, I was able to learn some more about that, but Ayurveda literally translates to the science of life, Sanskrit, and it's essentially the sister science for yoga, which is, actually means to use your, your mind, body, and spirit together. And so it's really the medical aspect of those uh, ancient practices. And it's very preventative. It's very self-care directed. And I found it to be extraordinarily helpful in my practice. When I was there in the fellowship with you, you know, that was our research thesis mm-hmm. that we later had published in the Ayurvedic Journal of Health. But we took the different uh, mind-body archetypes, characteristics, and just did a 10-question survey that was uh, translated over from the Chopra Center. And then we gave them to 129 of our patients there in the KU Medical Center Clinic. And then we had them basically fill out their past medical history inventory form. We found all these statistically significant correlations between, say, their vada, pitta, or kapha, their doshas, their mind-body archetypes, and these different disease states in Western medicine, which was really cool because that scientifically validated these ancient theorems that have been around for like 5,000 years and no one had ever tested them, which is really kind of mind-blowing to me. And so that was really, really cool to kind of be able to, to do such a simple study that was, was impactful and did show some, some very cool findings. You know, it's interesting when you think about your transition from Haiti and all of the gut disorder there, mm-hmm. and then into your training and into your practice now, I mean, it all is tying up so interestingly. To the gut. You're so right. And it's so funny. And, and so, you know, I don't know about you, but it seems like sometimes some of your own personal experiences or personal struggles can really help to strengthen your clinical practice. I, I don't know what happened. I don't know if it's I got some crazy bugs when I was down in Haiti or what, but, uh, <laughs> you know, drinking too much chlorinated water, backpacking, but my, my gut is just all kinds of screwed up, you know, and I have, uh, I have a lot of gut issues and food issues and that kind of thing. So constantly working on it. And, you know, my Jeannie, Jeannie Bell, my wife's always like, are you going to get that tested? So it's funny as we kind of transcend these experiences ourselves, we're able to apply them and help our patients out. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping this could be a, a next level for myself and for the folks that I'm trying to help out along the way as well. So do you guys make <laughs> fermented foods? Um, so we used to, I used to make like a kombucha quite a bit and uh-huh. we do, I have started eating Nancy's yogurt. It's like an organic grass fed yogurt every day. Uh-huh. Um, I do, I like kimchi. You have that occasionally. Um, we do some like tempeh sometimes, but it would be cool to do more homemade fermented foods. I know a lot of people do uh-huh. and that's a great idea. Yeah. you. I don't know if you were in the clinic then, but we started making Bravo yogurt from Bravo oh, Yogurt cool. Cultures. No, yeah. I haven't done that. It's a Swiss company, mm-hmm. but it's available in the U.S. Oh my gosh, it is amazing. And it seems to help kids too that have neurocognitive difficulties. I really love Bravo Yogurt. I don't have any financial ties to them. No, but. I feel you, I feel you, I feel you. No, that's really yeah. cool. That would save me a lot of money because yeah, yeah, I should start making my own yogurt. That's actually a really good idea. Yeah, I can get some really good, get some good local raw, you know, whole milk. milk around here yeah. for some local cows or yeah. something. That'd be great. Oh, oh, yeah, there's Luna Bell. Yeah, you can hear her in the background. <laughs> she just woke up from a little nap. But yeah. you're right. You know, that's interesting, the neurocognitive development and how that ties back to the gut. It I mean, is I think absolutely you, part of the gut. Yeah, it makes me think about like kids with autism too. Yes. As well. It does you know? help them as well. Yeah. You know, my wife works with a lot of kids that are on that um, that sensory spectrum. And, uh-huh. you know, the, the gut issues are, you know, always one of the main problems there. You know, they've actually done some studies. I'm sure you've seen this too, but they've actually given some of these kids uh, antibiotics and some of their autistic symptoms resolve temporarily mm-hmm. until their, I guess, their baseline gut flora comes back. Comes and back, comes roaring back. Yeah. yeah, it is wild. It's so interesting. 
Is there anything else you want to tell me about something exciting you're doing? I guess the biggest adventure right now is just trying to figure out how to be a dad. And I will say um, anyone that has raised a child, fathers, mothers, I have so much respect and just hats off to you. And I know in my clinical practice now, anyone that tells me that they're stressed or tired, I will, I will be asking them more about like, hey, like, what is your family structure? You know, and <laughs> do you have any kids right now? And those kind of things. I'll be a lot more empathetic to that because Jeannie and I are trying to figure this out. And I'm really blessed. She's an incredible mom. I guess our big things for this year are learning how to be parents. I'm going to do that national Ayurvedic conference coming up in April. I want to get, you know, you really turned me on to the whole orthomolecular functional medicine training and, you know, I'm planning on, um, I took a functional medicine course last year and I want to mm-hmm. try to take the rest of those modules for the next two years to get certified in that. And then I guess, you know, we're, have some big wellness initiatives going right now at University of Tennessee Medical Center, just for like organizational wellness for like our mm-hmm. physicians and staff oh, and all that's that. that's so and, needed. There's so much burnout right now. It's crazy. You know, it's wild. So I'm in the American Academy of Family Physicians and I just got a a flyer the other day for an upcoming conference. It's all about physician well-being. Yeah, Man, I couldn't. Yeah. I was like, what from from them too? I was like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it, we're we're really I promote that here. Yeah, it's bad. I you, mean, there's you the, you feeling the same thing? I see a lot of it. In fact, I'm I've been collecting papers and I've got a stack right here on my desk. Yeah. Oh my <laughs> about, gosh, you do. Yeah. Yeah, about clinician distress, clinician burnout. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the change in the structure of the medical system. It's gotten so corporate. I mean, you were talking about feeling like a robot in a white coat at medical mm-hmm. school 10 years ago, but right. can you imagine how bad it is now? It's gotten much, much worse. And, I can't. you know, physicians are really altruistic. I mean, we go into the practice of medicine because we want to help people. And right. when all you can do is a, you know, a 10 minute visit, you, mm. it's so dissatisfying. No, I totally agree. I think that's one of the problems too. I mean, there's just that, there's that moral rub, you know, like you have what you really believe in and how you really want to practice. And then, you know, I'm blessed because in our practice, you know, I get an hour with new patients. Oh, isn't that, yeah, it's and, wonderful. You know, yeah. But I mean, if I was, if I was jammed in 15 minutes, I mean, all you have time for is to give someone a pill. You don't right. even have time to assess what's really going on in their life. And I think docs get stuck in that. Like you said, we want to make a difference. And, you know, when you're just doing that, you know, that more that superficial form of medicine, you're not able to actually get down to the underlying cause. It, I think it, it's, 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 it hurts, you know, because, you, you know, it, it's hard to watch people suffer. Yeah, it is. It is. Well, this has been awesome. And I so appreciate you taking time out from your paternity leave to talk oh, sure to me. It's, it's my pleasure. Anything I can ever do for you, please. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. This is wonderful. All right. Tell Jeannie and Luna, bye-bye. Thank you so much, Jeannie. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Dr. Clayton Bell, for listening to patients during a very vulnerable time in their health journey and for providing integrative cancer care at the University of Tennessee Cancer Institute. The Art and Soul of Healing would like to send a special shout-out to the Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing up for our health freedoms.